Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Kendra Coulter. Kendra is a professor of management and organizational studies at Huron University College. And today we'll be discussing her book, Defending Animals, Finding Hope on the Front Lines of Animal Protection, which was published earlier this year by MIT Press. Welcome to the podcast, Kendra. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, it's, it's great to be talking to you. Um, so I, before we begin talking about your book, I was hoping that you would say a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, uh, what topics you work on, or, or anything else you think that listeners might want to know about you. Well, originally from rural Alberta, but I've spent most of my life in southern Ontario in Canada. Uh, animals have always been part of my life. I think like many young people, we are learning about animals in our own homes and neighborhoods. We're reading and being read books about animals. And I, I fundamentally believe that that was essential to uh, planting the seeds of, of, of my career in this book. I'm now really pleased to be Professor of Management and Organizational Studies at Western University uh, and have for most of my academic career now been studying the connections between animals and work, animals and organizations. And so this uh, is is an opportunity to further expand on that. And I'm I'm so grateful to have the support uh, of my university and colleagues uh, to to, to reach a broad audience and and, and hope that folks really uh, engage uh, and and feel feel good when when they read this book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of, of, of reaching a, a broad audience, um, so uh, one thing that uh, was kind of uh, striking to me when I was uh, deciding to uh, ask you for an interview was just that um, your publisher is extremely keen on your book, like to to a greater extent than publishers normally are. Uh, your, your publisher is more interested in your book than, the, than academic publishers are normally interested in the books that they publish. So like one thing that, uh, so I, I read on your website that uh, there was a multi-publisher auction uh, concerning your book and that it was only after that auction that it ended up at MIT Press. So that, that that's interesting. Um, but another thing was just that uh, MIT Press, at least with respect to the New Books Network, um, pitched your book multiple times. So like your, your book was pitched in the conventional way, which is that you sort of like submit, you use this form to submit a pitch to the New Books Network. Um, but uh, your, your publisher also sent um, multiple emails to the New Books Network's editors, and those emails were sent to me. Um, so they're really, they're pushing your book hard. Like, it seems like they really, really want to market it. I, I was hoping you'd speak a, a, a bit to this, like all this like hubbub surrounding your, your book. Well, that's great to hear and gives listeners a little glimpse into the, the world of book publishing. I've certainly felt the enthusiasm from the team at the MIT Press from the very beginning. Uh, it's, it's so wonderful to have their uh, support uh, and they're, they're smart, they're savvy and are, are, are really committed to uh, to reaching a broader audience. Um, I've done a lot of writing for media sources, speaking to broader audiences, but this is an opportunity to take years of research and translate some of these com- complex issues or debates into language that's really exciting, um, uh, in, into language that's inclusive in an accessible way that invites people in uh, and, and allows people, regardless of where they are in terms of their educational or career journeys, to connect with these issues. So I'm really grateful to the MIT Press, to Penguin Random House for distribution and it was not an exaggeration to say this book would not be possible without my agent, Chris Bucci, at Avidas Creative Management in New York City, who uh, approached me about reaching a broader audience, cognizant how much people care about animals, that there's a need for a book that spotlights 
animals themselves, but simultaneously the people on the front lines in all their diversity who were doing such powerful, compelling work. So I'm really grateful for, for the support of my team and, and happy to have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the book and opportunities like this with you, Kyle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that's all very helpful. Um, I, I, yeah, I hope that your, your book reaches a lot of people. I, th I think you, you did a good job of writing it in a way um, that you, you did a good job of writing such that uh, an audience of non-academics would find the book accessible and interesting. Um, like, so you, you include lots of personal stories and you avoid jargon for the most part. And when there is a bit of jargon, you do a good job of like making sure that you, uh, that you define it and, and whatnot. So I, I found the book to be, to be very readable and engaging. Thank you. All right. Well, um, so let's, let's talk about some of the details of the book, but, but for, so yeah, why, why, why did you decide to write this book? I guess you kind of or maybe already gave us a little bit of insight into into what what you find exciting about your book or what you're trying to do with the book. But yeah, what, why did you decide to write this book? As another expression and a powerful expression of solidarity with animals uh, and and with people on the front lines who are doing the work. This book allows me to interrogate and examine the work being done to tell the stories to really humanize and animalize these issues um, while you know inviting readers to think about what's going on behind the scenes what makes animal protection possible and to do so in a way that is inviting and inclusive as you say that in, uh, and 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 simultaneously um, to to do so in a way that is hopeful and uh, allows people to connect, allows people to see what's possible, where the accomplishments are, where we still have some work to do, and really to offer food for thought, food for action, and perhaps most of all, inspiration. Okay. Um, and yeah, so you, you, you've said that, um, I mean, your, your book is by and large uh, looking at the work of people who, who are in different ways involved in the in protecting animals. Um, and so your, your book involved a lot of journalistic research. It struck me as, as being a, 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 a very journalistic, like it could have been written by a journalist, even though I know that you're, you're not a journalist yourself. Um, so like some of the journalistic things you do are that you, you sometimes shadowed people um, and, and uh, you write about your, your experience shadowing people while they were working. Uh, and you certainly ask a lot of different people a lot of questions. And, so, and your book uh, records some of those, or certainly records a lot of the responses that people gave you. Um, so I was, I was hoping that you would tell us a little bit about what it was like to talk to and share the experiences of people who work on behalf of animals. Um, and I'm also wondering if there's any particular thing you saw or did while conducting your research that was, that was really memorable for you. Well, I'm actually trained as an anthropologist. So <laughs> although now I'm a very interdisciplinary thinker and researcher, field research is central to, to how I undertake research and seek to understand what's going on. So the data that informs this book has informed many academic publications as well. So I'm building from nearly a decade of research. So the field research, it allows me to uh, conduct to, to see what's going on in real time, to conduct interviews, I've held focus groups, all of these different strategies add texture to what's going on. Um, allow me to, to see things play out in real time for people who are doing this very challenging work on a day-to-day -day basis, often behind the scenes um, and with, with little fanfare. Mm -hmm. uh, but also it allows um, me to probe more deeply, to, to build the relationships, to ask some of the tougher questions. And, and that's really central to this book is that we're 
moving beyond slogans we're moving beyond headlines to what's really going on to building nuanced understanding that sometimes things are quite complicated strategies may be imperfect but that people are thinking and doing their best so mm -hmm. it was an assemblage of uh, you know many many years uh, of stories of targeted research specifically bringing in these powerful stories from communities courtrooms and boardrooms across Canada, the United States, around the world in countries like Sweden or Colombia. And it, it adds that, that, that color and it, it paints a portrait of what I call the animal protection landscape, mm -hmm. which is that if you picture a, a landscape and there's a stream running through it and people are working at different places on this landscape with different animals. And some are working downstream to try to rescue animals from the stream who've been pushed in or fallen in and to treat those victims with care and dignity. Some people are working up further upstream to try to stop animals from being pushed into the stream in the first place hmm. uh, and working at looking at working on, on, on finding prevention strategies, proactive strategies to prevent harm and cruelty before they, they begin. And maybe most challenging of all is some people are working across the stream, reaching across, trying to build bridges, trying to forge alliances between people in different geographic regions, within different occupational sectors uh, who, who may not normally collaborate, but who can through animal protection. And many of the people I interviewed, and I believe this, that animals have immense power to help us find commonality and common cause. So this is undoubtedly a time with a lot of polarization and division. Mm -hmm. It would be silly not to recognize that there is growing hate, there's growing extremism, um, there, there are really significant environmental challenges uh, with respect to extreme weather and droughts and fires uh, and floods uh, that, are, that are making the, the, the moment that we're living in very scary. There's a lot of horror, but alongside that horror coexists hope. And that's really the message is that we have to recognize the opportunities, recognize the possibilities and learn from them. So many of the stories that were most surprising or most meaningful to me are in the book. I might highlight the uh, experience that opens defending animals, sure. uh, which was in a field of a major U.S. city. Some of the locations are um, are, are, are obfuscated or hidden. I, 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 dis I disguise the names of the people who were speaking with me or where we were located, given the significance of the work that they're doing, their privacy concerns, security concerns, etc. So we were in a major city and I was accompanying two uh, animal protection workers into a community-based strategy. Um, one was a, a therapist, one was a veterinarian, and th their focus is to try to respond to individual cases. And we were heading into um, a, case, a suspected case of hoarding. Mm -hmm. And they had been in a really severe case of hoarding mere days before where you know over 70 large dogs had taken over an entire home. Um, so that was obviously a very disturbing situation in terms of what they saw in terms of animal suffering and, and, and people as well. And we were, of course, heading into yet another one. And it was very physical, very, I had a very visceral reaction to it. I talk about the smell of hoarding and the way it, it sears your nose and you, you never forget it once you've smelled it. Uh, and the people treated the woman in question in this, in this instance, who had a tiny apartment, it was overflowing with cats, uh, with great respect. And in that room was a little turtle in a tank 
and the turtle was swimming and swimming and didn't have any kind of a rock or perch to rest on. Hurtle, uh, turtles do need to breathe oxygen, so they are—they're not—they don't live under the water at all times. And the turtle was just swimming and swimming. And I was watching this all play out. I was watching the the, the number of cats. I was the smell. The, my eyes were burning. Listening to uh, the animal protection worker speaking with the woman about what supports were available, how we could help her and the cats. Um, and I just kept staring at this turtle, um, uh, you know, seeing how we're so connected. And in many ways, it was this powerful metaphor that everyone is trying to keep their head above water. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, these, off- these, uh, these, these animal protection workers plan to return the next day with a proper tank for the turtle. So, so the little cre- shelled creature would have a place to rest, a perch. Um, and, and I think that story says so much about the interconnections, that animal and human well-being are fundamentally interconnected. That's a central theme of the book. And that applies not only to animal caretakers, but also to the people on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And I'm going to ask you about um, those interconnections in a moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that story from from the book. I mean, it, it, I, I, maybe it feels good. Uh, a little bit to to know that you probably made a difference in that in that turtle's life, because uh, I mean, in that particular case, no one was there looking for turtles. It was a uh, it was about it was about dog hoarding. You said right. So if you hadn't noticed that, then maybe maybe nothing would have happened to help that turtle. Um, so that's that's nice. But 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 I take I take it that um, I mean some, maybe your own experience there too. But but in, and insofar as it's 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 also a. Uh, a representative experience. Um, I, it can be really kind of emotionally overwhelming to be involved in in animal protection. Like I, I, I remember getting the impression as I was, as I was reading the book that working in animal protection and, and you cover lots of different areas of animal protection. In this particular case, you're looking at um, people who are involved in dealing with um, cases that concern companion animals in particular and and um, uh, cases of neglect or abuse and, and investigating them. Um, but um, it, this this is this is a I, I don't know if this is a theme exactly throughout the book, but it's 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 there a lot of the time that this sort of work is extremely emotionally difficult, and I mean it must have been emotionally difficult for you too at times to be watching watching people do this work. Absolutely, yeah. I practice what I call a stubborn commitment to hope, and recognize the pain and suffering, but it becomes what propels me. The animals' challenges, the need for them. Uh, to to have better lives, to be protected from harm, but also to have, to have positive opportunities to experience care and joy and love in their in their own lives. What I've seen and what I've experienced is 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 very significant. Things I never thought I would witness or learn about, but that's the the reality of our world. And I've seen a fraction of what folks on the front lines see every day. Yeah. So yeah. whether it's investigating suspected cruelty or neglect of people in homes uh, with companion animals or, or dealing with some endangered species, you know, where we're down to hundreds on the entire planet it is undoubtedly a heavy emotional burden. But what becomes clear when you move across the animal protection landscape and talk to the people doing the work is this need for us to keep working, that most people who care about animals are not going to be comfortable doing nothing or giving up. We, of course, have to take care of ourselves and each other, but the animals deserve so much more, so much better. And they need us to keep caring, to keep working, to keep learning, and, and to keep defending them. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Um, 
Well, yeah. So uh, you, you've you've already kind of pointed at this. So one of the book's themes is that human and animal vulnerabilities are interconnected. Um, I think I think this was a really important theme in the book, and and so I was hoping that you would explain some of the ways in which these vulnerabilities are interconnected, um, as well as why you think it's important to be to be aware of those interconnections. I'll highlight a couple because it is an absolutely central theme uh, and, and central to, to everyone who cares about animals. One is the well-being of people on the front lines doing the work. Animals aren't protected without work. People are required, whether it's undertaking investigations into suspected cruelty or doing uh, marches uh, and, and, and circuits to uh, patrol terrain in national parks in Central Africa, in the Central African continent, for example, to, uh, to defend endangered species like mountain gorillas. The well-being of the people who do the protection and the well-being of the animals is fundamentally interconnected. So when we support people on the front lines, when we ensure that there are sufficient numbers of them to have reasonable caseloads and to reach animals quickly, that they're covering geographic regions, uh, that that are, are are navigable in a mo- in a moderate amount of time, that helps animals. When we are treating those people with respect in terms of fair pay, fair working conditions, that benefits animals because then those people are better able to do their jobs. When we recognize the serious psychological burden of this work and ensure that these people are uh, being supported in terms of mental health resources. And, to because they're seeing some of the worst in our society uh, mm-hmm. uh, harm against people and animals they need to be protected physically it can be very dangerous they're walking into unknown situations sometimes with very little information and their uh, assaults are common threats are common we, we we need to be protecting them physically while simultaneously recognizing the burden that they're bearing and the the, the psychological and emotional costs of what they do and that's a powerful segue into one of the second examples of human and animal well-being being connected. And this is what's called the human-animal violence link. Hmm. So a lot of listeners may know that people sometimes or abusers begin by harming animals and then expand to other people or to other kinds of crimes. So that can be the case in terms of mass murderers or serial killers. And that is part of the human-animal violence link. Mm-hmm. But the link is even more complicated. It's not only abuse that occurs in sequence, it's abuse that can occur simultaneously. So animals may be being abused alongside people. So in this way, we can think of animal cruelty as a gateway or a window into more disturbing and difficult circumstances facing that include child abuse, uh, domestic violence, elder abuse, that that when people are investigating suspected animal harm, they may find humans who are being harmed as well. Animals are used as pawns and as proxies, I argue in the book. Abusers will weaponize people and especially women's love for their animals to try to get them to stay or to come back. Um, a recent study by my, my colleagues at the University of Windsor found that 89% of women in domestic violence shelters reported that their animals had been threatened or actually harmed by the abusive partner. 
sorry, the abusive ex-partner. And this is data specific to Canada, but it reflects a broader pattern. We have a massive body of research and evidence now of how these interconnections play out. People in abusive situations will delay leaving for fear of their animals. And unfortunately, sometimes their animals are victimized um, and, and, and killed as punishment or payback. It's particularly disturbing connection of human animal well-being, but it's one of the most powerful opportunities for us to see these connections and act on them so that we're better protecting animals and people simultaneously. There's work being done in communities of all sizes and around the world to recognize this human-animal violence link and to see that, that animal protection is not a distraction from public safety. It is fundamentally integral to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Um, I, I take it so... Um... Uh, and maybe maybe this is something you would have ended up talking about anyways later on a little bit. But one of the um, things you emphasize in the book is the importance of cooperation. And um, I think you had something fairly broad in mind, like cooperation between different jurisdictions, different sectors, different agencies. But um, and there were, but but the thought was that like without like quite a lot of cooperation, um, it's going to be really difficult to effectively. Um, protect animals. I, I take it that one of the reasons for the importance of cooperation is because of these interconnections. Like, so um, if because of the violence link, um, we have this we have this uh, d- demonstrable interconnection between violence against animals and violence against um, human beings. And so um, it would be easier to address both of those things if um, people working to protect animals and people working to protect uh, the human beings that abusers are, are targeting were to integrate their their work. I mean, and that's just one example, right? But am I, am I right about this? Like this, these interconnections are part of the reason why cooperation is really important. Yes, and organizations that protect animals, whether in the public sector or nonprofit sector, are systematically underfunded and under-resourced. So cooperation and collaboration allows organizations to best maximize their resources and best harness the potential of the particular workforces and services that they offer. It's also because of what's called the animal harm spectrum, what I have called the the animal harm spectrum, which recognizes that suspected illegal cruelty or concerns that people see in their neighborhoods or in their apartment buildings down the road from, from where they live exist across the spectrum need to be investigated so that evidence can be gathered and what's really going on can be determined. But on the one end, you have the really extreme, violent, uh, appalling cases that warrant particular reactions where the uh, criminal justice system is going to be most effective and most uh, powerfully used. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people who themselves are struggling People who may be grappling with disabilities or mental health issues, who lost their jobs, who are struggling themselves, vulnerable seniors, and who are working hard to try to uh, care for their animals but lack resources or need additional supports. You can see how those two ends each require different responses. When people are intending and wanting to do well but struggling, they do need empathy. They need to be treated with empathy. And, And what helps is to offer resources, supports, programs that that help them do better so that they can better help their animals, not criminal justice strategies that punish people for being poor. And then in between those two ends, there is a broad cross-section of of complicated cases that themselves are going to warrant different kinds of tools. We want frontline investigators to have different tools in their toolkits. 
when they are out in the field seeing different circumstances. We want them to be able to use their professional judgment, use their expertise and training to assess situations, and then pursue a range of options based on the particular context. So that's a good thing. And that, that's another example of why we need partnerships, because perhaps they need to be engaging social services. They need to be engaging veterinarians. Maybe they need to be working with a, a humane society. Maybe they need to be working with law enforcement. When you have those connections and those relationships, that's when people can best serve other people and animals simultaneously. Okay, right. Thanks. Um, well, so, so your book... Uh, switching gears a little bit, I guess. Your your book discusses conservation and wildlife rehabilitation, um, and I and I thought it was interesting that you you separate your discussion of these two topics. Um, so chap- chapter seven of your book is is about conservation work, and chapter eight is mostly about wildlife rehabilitation. Um, I, I was hoping that you would explain how these two different areas of animal defense are are related to each other, but al- but also how they're different from each other. The conservation chapter introduces us to extraordinary animals like gorillas and elephants, uh, which, and those were the, the animals who were, were actually very central for me when I was 18, 19 years old and beginning to read books and to learn about the work that people do for, for animals. You know, I'm reading books by and about Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, Brute Galdicas, uh, and, and learning these extraordinary stories from around the world of people on the front lines of conservation and how it has evolved over time. What becomes clear in, in realms of conservation, particularly in the in Central and Southern African continent, where, where I focused, is that conservation is about law enforcement. There are frontline rangers who face many of the same barriers and challenges as cruelty investigators, you know, in Toronto or, or, or New York City. But the risks are that much more significant. They are in lethal, fatal danger. Uh, a lot of the time, and many have been killed defending some of the last uh, mountain gorillas in the world. So you see that connection, but just how much more significant it is that poor black people are literally losing their lives in the defense of animals uh, and, and, and why it's so important for us to be recognizing that and, and supporting their efforts in solidarity. Simultaneously, you see, you see a lot of focus on community development that not not of not seeing local people and local communities, indigenous peoples as enemies of conservation, but rather leaders and partners. So conservation is also about economics. It's also about community development and about working within and across borders in ways that are uh, respectful and rooted in reciprocity and support. Hmm. So there's been significant, there have been significant developments in conservation where there's really a shift towards prevention, to working upstream, to use that animal protection landscape metaphor, to try to prevent problems before they start, to try to have healthy communities and healthy multi-species relationships. So the conservation terrain is very exciting. Um, Some of it is being led by extraordinary women uh, and uh, I, I really hope that I do justice to their courage, bravery, and intelligence as they are absolute global leaders and assets in terms of animal protection. Close to home, wildlife rehabilitation, uh, you know, I have a st- powerful story about a young raccoon uh, and a, you know, a seven-hour odyssey a road trip to, to get her up care, uh, cases from, from Washington, and Maine of wildlife rehabilitators who are largely unfunded, 
by government. They are providing a valuable public service, but are reliant on donations, their own voluntary labor, our self-funding to provide frontline responsive care to wild animals and our animal neighbors in particular. So we care a lot when we see injured animals in uh, in in our own in our own neighborhoods, and and who's going to do the work? Well, we're, if we're lucky, wildlife rehabilitators. So conservation organizations are in some cases providing one-to-one responsive emergency medical care for animals or preventative proactive strategies. And this is particularly these sort of extreme conservation strategies are used uh, when when we're down to a few hundred or a few thousands of a species left on the planet, Um, but but focus a little bit more on economic development, more on species level strategies, on protecting individuals as well as the whole. Wildlife rehabilitators are trying to do what they can to treat the animals who are harmed by us, and they're most often harmed by human vehicles, human buildings, by the windows on our our our, our homes, apartments, skyscrapers. Uh, the, the the harm that occurs to to animals, you know, from cats who are let outside. Um, and are harming songbirds and chipmunks. We are our species is often the reason that wild animals are being harmed, and so uh, a growing number of people are doing that responsive medical work and trying to prevent harm as well when they can. Organizations are working um, to try to minimize bird strikes on windows, for example, mm-hmm. by increasing access to really simple things that people can do, like putting decals on their windows so the birds recognize that the windows are in fact there because birds see the world very differently with with their eyes than than humans do. So I know this is an issue you've written and thought a lot about too, Kyle, um, but I like to, I've showcased and I I like to to, to highlight some of this this work uh, in terms of possible possible care and strategies and a possible greater role for the public sector for government investment in tending to uh, the front lines of animal rehabilitation, and that's that's good for animals, and that's good for people and our safety too. Given the close interconnections between human and animal health. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Thanks. Um, yeah. I, so I, I remember the uh, the story that, and this was this was a personal story of yours that you uh, you came across an injured raccoon, and um, you were very interested in um, having uh, in finding medical care for the raccoon, but it was kind of prohibitively difficult to do that. Um, and uh, and you ended up eventually finding, uh, I guess, a, a wildlife rehabilitator who was who was uh, free to to help the raccoon, but it, it took a lot of time for you to to manage that. Um, I mean, I take it so. Um, there, yeah, I, I can see that, that there's overlap between wildlife rehabilitation and conservation. Um, one way that you might go about what one strategy for conserving an endangered species would be to rehabilitate members of that species um, in, in order to. Um, uh, help that species number stay up. Um, so while their rehabilitation is sometimes in service of conservation, um, but I take it that especially when we're dealing with say raccoons, um, often wildlife rehabilitation is not in service of conservation. It's entirely just about helping individual suffering animals or individual animals who are facing harms, uh, regardless of whether those animals are considered pests or whether those animals are uh, perhaps considered invasive and so perhaps are detrimental in some way or another to, to conservation. Like they, they can also come apart quite a bit, wildlife rehabilitation and the concerns of conservation. And I, and I take it that was maybe why it was kind of hard to, for you to find someone who was willing to, to treat a raccoon. It's because raccoons are are considered pests. Um, they're very numerous, so it's not like their numbers are down or anything like that. And so uh, a lot of people um, are less interested in, in helping raccoons than they might be in, in helping other animals. Um, I, and it, most it, of the wildlife rehabilitation organizations were over full. That was central to the problem with finding care for the raccoons as well. 
I think they're an incredible species. They're very intelligent. They're very devoted to their family. Uh, they're, they're, they're dutiful parents, just like humans. And so I think all strategies that encourage coexistence with animals like raccoon are important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, okay, well, so in, in, in chapters 9 and 10 uh, of your book, uh, so the, these are both about animals that you describe as being in between. Uh, you, you have this concept of, of there being certain animals that are um, in between. I, I was hoping that you would explain the idea of being in between and also say a bit about uh, the hardships that animals in this category face and, and the work that's being done to, to help them. Here we meet captive animals who are members of species where the majority of the population is in the wild, but certain individuals are held in captivity. So in roadside zoos or for entertainment or as pets. So whether you're talking about tigers or, or monkeys. So these, uh, these, these captive animals are often far away from their ancestral lands, are held in very difficult uh, and damaging circumstances, and are also in between legal categories uh, uh, or can be in between legal enforcement structures if you cross a county line, for example, the restrictions or requirements can, can vary significantly. So these animals sometimes are the most obvious and the most seen. So for example, in the case of you know, the documentary, The Tiger King, the tigers were all over uh, the screen, although their well-being was not necessarily made central to the documentary itself. Uh, or these animals may be hidden on, on private property or in, in, in people's homes. It's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a contradiction, but what's key is that we take their well-being seriously, and there, I, I again highlight the strategies being used by a cross-section of different organizations, some in the public sector, uh, but many in the nonprofit sector, grappling with things like the wild animal trade and what strategies work best in terms of trying to keep wild animals wild uh, and, and in the lands where they belong. Horses are also in between. They are legally defined as livestock, but most people think of them as something more complicated. They're often considered friends or companions. They may be considered athletes or laborers. They're an important species for, for, for me. I was on the back of a horse before I could walk. <laughs> and their, their generosity is really hard to overstate. No species has done more for humans than, than horses have in terms of the, the time they have spent uh, working with and for us and the diversity of things they do for us to this day. And horses, because they're seen as loved and perhaps seen as cherished, can sometimes fall through the cracks. So mm -hmm. flashpoints that are public, for example, horses around Central Park or other tourist venues who, who pull carts may generate uh, public attention and the concern of people who, who are animal advocates. But there are so many hundreds of thousands uh, of other horses and the, their experiences vary quite dramatically. So whether they're uh, owned and cared for by an individual person or, or in a large industry like horse racing, their experiences are fundamentally different. So not surprisingly, the protective strategies being used to defend horses also vary. And that chapter gives readers, uh, 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 paints a portrait for readers uh, of the work being done to, to help horses. Uh, and ensure that this love we supposedly have for them translates into the protections that they deserve. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I, 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 I found some of the uh, facts about the way horses are treated to be um, striking, and I think I already knew some of this stuff. But um, so, I mean, your your chapter on horses, um, 
I think quite a lot of that chapter talked about horses in in the the racing industry. I, I guess is what, is what you'd call it. Uh, um, and uh, I mean, there's there's lots of um, ethical uh, concerns to be to be raised about the way horses are treated in the racing industry. But I I, I guess one of them is that when they get um, older, um, it's relatively rare for them to be say retired to uh, a sanctuary of some kind. It's it's perhaps common practice, I guess, to for them to be um, shipped somewhere or 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 just killed or um, like. Uh, I think uh, uh, there there are some places in the world where, where there's actually demand for horse meat. So sometimes horses will be will be shipped shipped somewhere and to to be killed and used for meat. But um, also, I think um, maybe sometimes horse meat is used in in feed for other animals. I think that might have, that might have been one of the uses of it. Um, uh, that, yeah, that I mean, to look it. at the North American context, horses are slaughtered in Canada and Mexico. Um, they are slaughtered for zoo meat in the United States. There's no, there's no legal restrictions on that. Um, and they are exported live from countries like Canada, although the federal government has pledged to end that practice. We are waiting for that to become a, a reality. You, you mentioned that uh, when racehorses are old, it's actually not when they're old. Uh, horses' natural lifespans are between 20 and 30 years of age. Most racehorses are done their careers at age three or four. And that's when the large majority of horse activities are beginning in other sorts of horse cultures. So thoroughbred racing is quite different from many of the uh, other sports uh, and entertainment industries that involve horses in that the, they are, the horses are intensively worked and used while they are largely still babies and teenagers. Uh, and so that's the significant contrast. So they're often age four or five. Some can go on to second careers, but unfortunately many do end up in the slaughter pipeline. And I'm pleased to be able to highlight some of the work organizations like Unbridled, uh, Thoroughbred Foundation, in uh, rural New York, which is, is working both downstream to try to defend as many horses as possible who are uh, in danger of being killed by slaughter, while simultaneously working upstream to, at some of the, the complexities of why there are so many horses being bred, being used, and being disposed of. Fundamentally, horses deserve better, and the chapter uh, invites readers to think about why. Right, okay. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um... I mean, I, I want to dwell just a little bit more on this, on horses. Um, and the reason is just that, um, so, uh, I mean, what, what, one of the things that I guess any, anyone who's uh, an animal ethicist or an animal studies scholar, um, the, I mean, they'll, they'll probably be familiar with the idea that um, different domesticated animals are treated differently depending on um, the kind of relationship that they have with us. So our, our moral standards, uh, as a matter of just sociological fact, moral standards differ quite a bit depending on uh, what domesticated, depending on what category a domesticated animal belongs to, I suppose. Um, so uh, companion animals are treated really quite differently um, from the way farmed animals are treated. It's it's actually, the, the difference is, is, is really stark. Um, most of us would, would find it t- terribly disconcerting to uh, cage a dog and then slaughter the dog for meat, whereas that's common practice for, for farmed animals, right? Um, and the reason I'm thinking of this right now is, and we're going to talk about farmed animals in a bit, but I'm thinking of this right now because it strikes me that your chapter highlights some of the ways in which horses are treated rather similarly to farmed animals. And I would have thought that that would shock and appall most people because I think most people don't think of horses as being like farmed animals. They tend to think of them as being more like companion animals. And so it just strikes me as sociologically peculiar that horses are treated the way they are by the racing industry and that there isn't more moral outrage about it, that it hasn't like shut down the, 
the racing industry. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. I'm kind of just, it's just occurring to me now, but. <laughs> um, I think it has to do with the fact that horses are generally kept on private property in rural areas, only seen by the people who are in that particular barn or farm. So often we have response-based strategies for animal well-being, <clears throat> whether we're talking about illegal cruelty or the many forms of perfectly legal cruelty. Uh, and in all, almost all cases, it need, it's people and members of the public, caring members of the public who either see something and make a report to law enforcement or see something and it's legal, but they will undertake strategies to try to pressure companies to change their practices or governments to create new laws to stop these practices to make them illegal. So horses are uh, in between, <laughs> as precisely as you mentioned, and, and they are often uh, on farms and away from the public eye. So it's really incumbent on people who are around horses to be cognizant of this, to recognize that they are sentient beings, to question business as usual, and to think about alternatives in terms of, of, of how animals could be treated and uh, people could have good paid work uh, in ways that, that help animals rather than harm them. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Um, well, yeah, so let's, let's talk about farmed animals then. Um, your book's last main chapter is about farmed animals and the different kind of work that's being done to protect them. Uh, so for example, you, you discuss work that's done at farmed animal sanctuaries, uh, and also work that's done at, at food companies that develop and sell alternative proteins. Um, I, I had the impression when I was reading this chapter that you were careful about the way you approached it. And uh, so, so more specifically, I, I think you've, you, it seemed to me that you felt like this was a really important chapter to include. Um, but that it was also a chapter that could potentially alienate your book's intended audience. Um, I was hoping you would speak to just first to, to why including this chapter in your book was really important, but but also why it may have been a tricky one to to approach. Most people love animals, but whether that love extends to animals who are killed for food depends. Hmm. Um, we have most countries have laws banning rooster fighting, cockfighting, for example, because it's seen as too violent and too brutal but it's perfectly legal to burn the beaks off of chickens, and that's common practice. That's exempt from uh, animal protection laws because it's considered to be normal, quote-unquote normal, um, or generally accepted, uh, quote-unquote, uh, in agriculture. And this is a, is a reality that most people don't, don't know about. They are unaware of the, the depth of suffering that these are animals, uh, whether you're talking about chickens, pigs, uh, or, or, or cows, any number of the other animals who are farmed for, for meat, they have much longer lifespans and many are killed, some at mere weeks, some at a year or two. There's just a lack of awareness. I believe that the more people learn and the more people know, they will begin to expand their webs of care and solidarity to these animals who themselves are curious, sweet, funny, smart, just like the dogs and cats who we cherish. So this chapter invites people to get to know some of the animals, to learn about what really happens to them, and then most significant, to see the cross-section of work that's being done by animal defenders to champion these animals, these sometimes forgotten animals. So whether it's businesses that are trying to improve the standards of animals before they're killed, or most excitingly, this expansion of businesses or what I call the business of animal protection, which is how are we creating alternatives that completely replace the use of and, and death of animals? How do we create food? How do we create fashion products? How do we create personal care products and cosmetics? 
this is an incredibly significant and exciting moment in history mm -hmm. where investors are taking this serious, seriously, entrepreneurs are taking this seriously. It's possible for people to make positive choices in their day-to-day -day lives every time they eat, every time they shop to demonstrate that they love animals. And that means all animals. Simultaneously, it's an incredible time to for people who are interested in expanding employment, for creating what I call new humane jobs, which are meaningful job opportunities for people uh, helping animals or eliminating harm by, by growing and developing and selling and distributing food, for example, in, in ways that don't cause any violence. So there's a lot of hope in this chapter. There's a lot of suffering. Undoubtedly, farmed animals are suffering physically, psychologically, and intergenerationally. And it's mm -hmm. impossible to overstate the depth of the harm that the human species is causing to the animals who have become farmed. But at the same time, there are so many areas of possibility. We have potential to not only reduce, but to eliminate harm against these kinds of animals. And this chapter is an accessible and inviting way for people to understand these these positive opportunities where they which organizations and businesses they can be supporting and maybe where they too could be building a career wherever people are in their educational or career journeys this book offers them food for thought it it, it outlines possibilities it remains committed to hope and to seeing the range of ways we could be doing better because animal protection is about laws and law enforcement undoubtedly but equally, it is about ethics and it is about the realm of business and economics. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, I like I like this chapter a lot. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm, uh, I'm vegan. I, I think you you probably are too. Um, and it was nice to see a chapter like this. But um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know how much I want to dwell on the on the trickiness idea um uh, uh, surrounding the chapter um i i think this book this book is intended for a general audience and um it's not like um most people in a general audience are vegan and often when you bring up uh the idea of veganism or or arguments for going vegan or arguments for shifting towards a vegan food system or something like that it can uh, it can get people's backs up um and i didn't feel like this chapter was a the kind was a chapter that was going to get people's backs up i mean which was interesting um, to me. I mean, part of it is that it's the it's the last main chapter in your book, so you kind of lead people through all this other material about animals um, and uh, the, the ways in which they're being protected and um, way, uh, various problems that different categories of animals face. Um, and then at the very end, you're you're talking to people about farmed animals, and I think that might have been psychologically helpful to include this chapter right at the end rather than say at the beginning, um, because I think in in it, in, in, a, in a book that was intended for other animal study scholars, maybe, maybe a chapter like this might have might have maybe gone at the beginning or something like that. Um, so that that was interesting. Also, I, I think at various points in the chapter you talked about um, the people who are so people involved in animal agriculture and their their interests and their um, some some of the concerns they themselves have about about um, killing animals for food. Um, I think at one point you you talk about how. Uh, there's a remarkably large number of, of ranchers' wives who are concerned about the killing of, of cows for food and who um, maybe don't always talk about these concerns, but but will talk about it in the right in the right context, um, and who would be very interested in transitioning towards um, ways of producing food that don't have to involve killing cows. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if you want to want to. I don't know if you want to speak to any of any of this kind of thing of, of like choices you might have made about what to focus on in the chapter in order to make it 
less likely that people would read it and feel like they were being attacked. I, I don't know. When people love animals and see the diversity of work that's being done to protect animals of all kinds, it becomes clear that that needs to extend to, uh, to, to all animals. And the opportunities for creating alternatives are becoming, there's such, there's such a strong case, whether young people who are increasingly interested in vegetarian or vegan strategies, a massive growth within black communities, and the, the, the potential for uh, reaching new market, reaching new possibilities, reshaping our relationship with food and each other is quite compelling. Simultaneously, you're seeing organizations like the Rancher Advocacy Project, like Mercy for Animals, who are calling for and actually implementing what I call human jobs transitions, which is that people do need paid work, and that includes rural in, in rural communities. So how can farms be transformed into new spaces that do different sorts of things that don't rely on animal killing? So, for example, there's possibilities in terms of care farms. There's possibilities in terms of other kinds of agriculture. There are new partnerships and ecotourist opportunities. There's no one-size-fits-all model. But when you take the animals and keep them front of mind and recognize the significance of economics and perfectly legal forms of cruelty, it becomes clear that we need to focus on alternatives. And those alternatives include transitioning farms and food production. Similarly, investments in lab-grown meat and dairy are expanding and will allow people in the future to consume meat and, and or dairy if they wish to do so, but in a way that didn't kill hundreds of billions of individual animals after short lives of intense suffering. So the technological developments, the economic investment, these are offering new possibilities for us to fundamentally shift our relationships with food to create new jobs and better jobs and possibilities for people of all backgrounds, including working class people, rural people, and migrant workers who cannot be left out in this story. Uh, we want to reduce harm and eliminate harm for both animals and people who, who labor in the food systems. So this is, this is a momentous time. It's one of the strategies that brings me the most hope uh, it, are, are the ways that through smart investments, technological change, and this entrepreneurial commitment to remaking food systems, we have the opportunity to, you know, and I would never say kill two birds with one stone. Instead, I say feed two birds with one fruit. We have the opportunity here to feed many birds with the fruit. Uh, and with the lab-grown meat and dairy that, that we cultivate. So it's a really exciting time. I think people will, regardless of what their engagements with food are, um, learn some things and learn some possibilities and see why uh, illegal cruelty and legal cruelty are connected and to see why we want to be supporting, supporting a more humane future for us all. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, okay, so... Uh, your, your your book expresses uh, a number of ideas about how to protect animals more effectively, um, and, and one especially important idea that that you've uh, you've brought up now um, already is that um, we need more of what you call humane jobs to be created. Uh, I was hoping that you would explain this idea, the idea of uh, creating humane jobs, uh, and also if you want uh, any of the other insights that your book has to offer on uh, how to effectively protect animals. I think I said a fair bit about this, so I'll just give you a, sh a shorter answer. 
I propose the idea of humane jobs as a new way of thinking and talking and acting in relationship to work where animals are involved. So succinctly, humane jobs are those that are good for people and animals. So the goal is to create more humane jobs. So that can mean greater numbers of people who are doing protective work. It can involve making their jobs more humane. For example, if they're experiencing very low pay, a lot of psychological distress, limited amounts of personal protection equipment, if it's dangerous, we want to be investing in protections for them to make those jobs more humane. Simultaneously, it is precisely what we've just been talking about, which is how can we grow the economy and build employment sectors that focus on helping instead of harming? So could we be growing things like, like care farms uh, and uh, indigenous-led ecotourism, these opportunities to, to give people good jobs uh, that, that are about positive relationships with each other, animals, and, and the natural world. And sometimes they're about replacing. Sometimes the practices that we want to see ended, we want them to be replaced with something positive. So in the case of, you know, if we want to end slaughtering of animals, there are many, many poor people who, through uh, no fault of their own and because they have few other options, are having to do that difficult and dangerous, highly dangerous work in slaughterhouses. I think this is an opportunity where we say we're not opposed to working people. We understand the need for jobs. Let's find the opportunities to create alternatives. And when we're building new plant-based opportunities for fashion, for food, for personal care products, for, for the broad cross-section of, uh, of items that we use on a daily basis that are currently being made with animals or with parts of animals, and we're creating alternatives that take the violence against animals out of the picture, we can be creating job opportunities for people of all backgrounds and uh, all skill levels. So this is an, an opportunity to be inclusive. This is an opportunity to emphasize equity and to see that a, a just humane jobs uh, transition the creation of new areas of work is good for people and good for animals. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thanks. Well, look, we, we, we've taken up a, a lot of your time. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for joining us to talk about your book, Defending Animals, Finding Hope on the Front Lines of Animal Protection. Uh, this book was published earlier this year by MIT Press. Uh, the only other question that I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects, and if so, uh, what are you working on? Always, quite a few. Uh, there's there, there there's never a moment to pause uh, for for more than or there, a moment to pause is is all I'm I'm willing to take because of the uh, because of the threats to animals and simultaneously because of the areas of possibility. So I'm working on uh, a new book that does actually involve horses and focus on 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 the future of horses' lives. At Huron University College, we're building new courses in animal welfare and sustainability leadership and animals in law and policy and animals and ethics and actually are proposing the world's first major in animal ethics and sustainability leadership which would equip students with in-depth topical knowledge about interspecies and ecological challenges while simultaneously building their leadership and organizational skills so they can go out into the world and make history and change animals. So this is a program that we're proposing. It's moving its way through the approvals process. I'm hoping that it will be approved and soon we will be able to be welcoming exceptional young leaders with heart to Huron University College at Western University in London, Ontario, from across Canada, across North America and around the world so that we can together work on translating the ideas into practice. So there's a lot going on in terms of writing, in terms of scholarship. It's an exceptional time. 
because we're wrapping up, I do want to acknowledge something, which is that when people read this book, and of course I hope they will, the very first photo they will see is of our dog, Sunny, who was an abuse survivor. Uh, and we, we rescued and adopted her. Uh, she's in many ways an ambassador to the power of animal protection and its potential to, to save lives. She spent many hours wrapped around my feet as I wrote, living proof of the power of compassion and care. Um, we had to euthanize Sunny yesterday. Uh, it, it was a week since the book was published um, and it was uh, a, it's very difficult, but in many ways she lives on in this book and in the work that people do to protect animals and she will always be the soul of defending animals. So I want to acknowledge Sunny. Yeah, no, that, that, that was good of you to do. And, uh, and um, thanks so much for, for joining us to talk about your book, in spite of the fact that um, it's, it's a tough time for you right now. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you.